Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you, people, the gentleman on my show today, as I was looking at his IMDb, he's been working since 1980, and in this day and age, for an actor to be in so many great projects, that's, that's, that's pretty damn good, and my guest is Adam Baldwin. How you doing, Adam? Good, Steve. Thanks for having me. I don't know how hip I am, but uh, nice try. It's good. So... You've been acting for a long time. I got to ask you, when did you decide you wanted to be an actor? Uh, well, you know, I, I, my first job I was in high school, and um, I auditioned at a cattle call basically and got the job for my bodyguard in 1979. So that film was in Chicago. We shot it in the summer of 79, you know, the summer of Get the Knack and, uh, you know, My Sharona and uh, Breakfast in America and, uh, was it, uh, what was it, the Stones album, um, um, Miss ta- You. Miss ta- You Miss You was playing on the radio a lot. Too. Some Girls. Yeah, Some Girls, that's the one. Uh, so that's kind of how I uh, mile marked that experience, was listening to the music on the radio at the time. Uh, I was a big Steve Dahl fan. Steve Dahl is a local radio station, uh, a rock and roll guy, and he he's the uh, the mastermind behind Disco Demolition, <clears throat> if you recall. Oh yeah, he in Wrigley Field. Were you? It was Wrigley, right? Or was it Comiskey? Comiskey. Yeah. Okay, and, and they brought all the albums down. And it's funny. I was just thinking about that. You know, when you mentioned "Miss You," and that was a song that actually had a disco feel to it, which was different for the Stones. And you think back, because everyone, a lot of people were anti-disco. You know, I mean, given you know the Saturday Night Live Fever soundtrack was was a good was a good soundtrack, but it was just funny yeah. that people just went crazy. So, so you were not that game, were you? I was. Uh, no, I was not. No, but. Uh... I appreciated that. I was very anti-disco at the time, although it was fun to dance to at the, at the high school dances and parties uh, in the in the late seventies. It, it's a good dance beat, but the whole uh, you know Saturday, Saturday Night Fever was on yesterday. I was watching it. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's it's very hokey uh, looking back, but the music is great. The music holds up. The Bee Gees are great. So what made you decide to want to act? I mean, you went for this cattle call as a kid where you were, cause you were a big guy. Were you an athlete as a kid or what, what made you actually try to pursue acting? Well, I grew up North side of Chicago and hockey was my game. I was pretty good at hockey until my parents got divorced and my buddy, this was right about age uh, 10, 11, 12, right in that range, you know, right before puberty. It's the best time for your parents to split up. Um, <laughs> Right, right before you, the hormones start flowing. Anyway, so my, my parents, they couldn't afford to send me to hockey camp in Canada where my buddies, who I was as good as and as big as, uh, they went over two summers to hockey camp while I, while I stayed back in Chicago, played Brisbee. Um, and uh, after two summers, of that, two summers of that, I couldn't compete with those guys anymore, so I had to make a choice. Where am I going to go? <clears throat> you need a social group when you're going into high school, so... I ended up in the drama department. I had done some, you know, theater club in, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth grade. But uh, I was a troubled youth. They called me an exceptional child (laughs) because I think I was either too smart or too dumb for my own good. I would (laughs) 
be a contrarian to the teachers. And uh, I remember a lot of meetings with my mom and the school counselor and the principal, and, like going to uh, you know child psychologists. Why won't he behave in class? <clears throat> the thing they didn't realize is that I would behave if the teachers were inspirational. I would. I was like an A's and F student. If the teacher was a jerk, I wouldn't care. I would wouldn't be inspired. But if the teacher was good, you know, straight A's. So anyway, I ended up in the drama department because, well, that's where the pretty girls were, and you know, that's, they didn't mind making each other laugh. But the other thing that was really cool about the drama club and uh, theater department, especially where I went to school, is it organically was uh, diverse and accepting of all different kinds of kids. You know, tall, short, fat, thin, gay, straight, black, white. Uh, it didn't matter. It's just could could you commit to the the text and show up for rehearsal and and be there in class? And I loved that. I loved that because you know you had a real diversity of, like I say, uh, intellectual diversity. True diversity. Now, you get into acting, and you said a cattle call. How did that come about? Because you know, you, people people if you don't know a cattle call, they just like they you'd see it in LA too. They put an ad, and people would just show up, and, and you get all kinds of people showing up. So I'm guessing your role when they for my bodyguard was it? What did they, what would, do you remember what the casting call said, or did it just was it just like we need a big guy who's going to play this role, or do you remember? Well, because I got the role, I know the whole process. The production company went to several cities, uh, obviously L.A. and New York. They also went to Chicago, Toronto, and I think they went also to Dallas. And they went to the local agents and said, find us high school age kids. We need to fill this movie with uh, high school kids. They weren't sure where they were going to film it. They were either going to film it in Chicago or Toronto. They ended up choosing Chicago that year. And... Uh, there was a, a notice posted on the bulletin board in the theater department, uh, casting for a major motion picture, blah, 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 after school. And one of the local agents came um, and he read, I guess, 30 of us. And four, I think, three or four of us were called back. And I went through the whole process and got called back a few times and I had to do a screen test and got the job. Uh, just persevered. I remember I was walking down a hallway in high school <clears throat> in between. I had started the casting process, but didn't have the, didn't have the job yet. And I think it was probably May, late May filming was to begin in late June. And, uh, Mr. Helfrick, the assistant principal for the juniors, he caught up to me and said, Mr. Baldwin, what are you doing? What? You're not going to class. I said, yeah, I don't know. He basically gave me the, what are you going to do with your life speech? <laughs> and uh, I said, yeah, I don't know, Mr. Helfrick. I think I'm probably going to end up doing movies or something. He goes, I heard about that. You're, you can't count on that. You know, you're going to have to have something to fall back on, like an education. <laughs> Poor Mr. Helfrick. Yeah. Now, when you get the role, I mean... You know, it, it must just be such a great feeling. But are you? Do you get a nervousness at all? Because you know, it's it's a motion picture. I know, I know you act and you, you do that. But all of a sudden, it's like, you know, we we're used to seeing movies on TV. We're not used to being in them. Well, fortunately, uh, Tony Bill, he started as a young actor 
uh, he was the director, and uh, a guy named Don Devlin, he was the producer. They started as young actors, so they were very cognizant of how to deal with young people. And uh, Matt Dillon, he was in it. He had done a couple movies. Are you still there? Yeah. Okay. Um, that was my alarm reminding me to call you. Uh, he, had, he had done a couple movies before, so they were a little... They gave them the lion's share of the dialogue. Uh, on the first few days, they gave me very little to say. Uh, you could kind of pick out which scenes were my first ones, just kind of standing there doing nothing. Uh, just <laughs> show up and uh, don't say anything, Adam. Just shh. Uh, and through the course of, you know, two weeks, I got comfortable and that's when they started giving me more things to say. And I was learning, absorbing where to stand, how to hit a mark, how not to look at the camera or down at the mark. Uh, there are a couple of times when I look back on that movie, I, I was very self-critical and, uh, cause there were some mistakes that I, I wish I'd done some things differently, but. Uh, now I'm 61. Uh, I, I recently watched the movie, I'd say, you know, six months ago or so. And I think it's better than I remembered it. And it does hold up. It's a nice movie. There are a lot of uh, young parents who are watching it now and saying, this is a nice movie. I said, all you have in there basically is a couple of fist fights and, let's see, son of a bitch and <laughs> bullshit are the only swear words in the movie and bastard and so it, it's nothing compared to what you see now so kids kids can really enjoy that and it's that's a timeless story of friendship and bullying and not bullying and uh standing up for yourself and courage and um I, I, like i say, i think it holds up and i was fortunate to have smart adults in charge uh, guiding us through well i i just watched a fight scene uh last night and uh, your final fight scene. And and it's great. I mean, you know, you sit there. It's one of those things. It looks, it, it doesn't, as you said, you look back on it. You thought you think it's different. When you look at it, it it's, it's, it's shot well. And I'm, I'm glad you kicked the guy's ass. But it was just good. Was that fun to shoot? I mean, what's it like when you shoot a scene like that? I mean, did you get hit at all by accident? Because I know to, I talked to actors who've gotten hit in the head when they weren't supposed to. Uh, their stage fighting skills were lacking. Uh, fortunately, Terry Leonard, the great stuntman, Terry Leonard, who was, uh, he had just come off of Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, and he was a little beat up and uh, from all the things he had to do for Harrison Ford in that movie, and he was happy to be on a small film, high school film, with a couple of fist fights that he had to choreograph. He didn't have to do the rough and tumble, so he was a stunt coordinator, and he taught me the John Wayne punch, uh, among other things. And I had, I had played judo when I was young, so I know how to take a fall. And uh, I, I have older brothers. I, I've been in, I had been in fist fights, But their goal was to make it look sloppy and real, uh, like we weren't trained fighters or anything, just a sloppy fist fight in the, uh, in the park. And uh, that's, that's how it came off. Now, after that, how does your life start changing? Does Hollywood see that and say, we're going to start giving you some roles or what happens? Because 
you know, ever, I remember watching that movie. I'm, I'm 60. And I remember watching that movie. You know, me and my friends watching it. I don't know if we saw it in a theater or for when it came on what was then. Cable was called Prism in New Jersey. But it was, we remember, we all liked that movie. And if you talk to people my age, everybody knows that movie. But what was it like for you once, once you got that first movie under your belt? Where does your, what, what do you, does your management, do you have a new manager? or How do you start getting work? Well, the local agent who read us for the the movie, he uh, he he became my agent by default because I wasn't really I wasn't going to relocate to L.A. or New York uh, at seventeen. I had to decide whether I was going to uh, go back to high school or move to L.A. or New York or stay in Chicago. So I I opted to stay in Chicago for another year. I tried to go back to high school, but that that just didn't work and um i i got a small part in ordinary people that fall there were four movies in chicago that year there was my bodyguard there was the hunter which was steve mcqueen's last movie uh the blues brothers was the big movie in town and then in the fall uh robert redford came in with ordinary people uh i got two of the three but i had a smaller supporting role uh, in ordinary people uh, so that gave me two uh, sheepskin bona fides to uh, get my foot in the door, at least. I had my foot in the door, but at least I had two legitimate movies that I was a part of. Uh, I was not sure where to go, so I took a play. I did a play in Chicago, so I stayed for another year and did a play called Album uh, about the uh, innocence of youth. Like sixty two, three, four. So Kennedy had been assassinated, but the Vietnam War hadn't started up in earnest. So it was that innocent time, listening to the Beatles, high school kids. It was me and Megan Mullally and Jennifer Grey and Alan Ruck. We did the Chicago uh, stint. Uh, I think the um, the New York. Uh, Origin off Broadway was Kevin Bacon, uh, Jenny Wright, um, Keith Gordon, and I'm trying to remember the other woman's name, but I can't. It was a poor person place. So I stuck around Chicago and did that, and I learned a lot uh, from the stage manager of all people. Basically, you have, you have to bring it every night. Every night, you got to bring it and be ready because these people are paying customers. Um, and then I moved to New York and lived there for a couple of years uh, in the early 80s. Crack hit the streets. It got really dangerous. And my buddies and I said, let's get out of here. It sucks being broke in New York. Let's go to L.A. At least at least it's warm there. <laughs> now, Been there ever since. Now, how did DC Cab start? DC Cab is another one of those classic movies. I mean, you look at your resume. You know, these are just classic movies that, for me, I, I loved. I mean, how did DC Cab come about and how... How was the set on that? Because you had Mr. T, you had Gary Pierce, you had all these people. But was that something that was pretty much your? Well, you were the lead of my one of the leads of my bodyguard. But you're you're very high up on the on the uh, credits on that. So what was? How did that? Uh, did you have to audition a lot for that, or what happened? I got D, I got DC Cab because the director and I shared an agent, and they couldn't get their first choice for their role. Uh, Michael J. Fox was their first choice, but he was busy. He was busy doing other things, so I got I got that job sort of as a uh, a package deal, must hire. I felt overwhelmed in that in that show. Uh, 
I didn't really have the comedic chops that I needed back then. Uh, and I wasn't sure what kind of a, it was a sort of a tornado of personalities whirling around me. And I, I, I look at myself in that movie and say, that kid is lost. I was 21. And, uh, like I said, I didn't have the comedic chops. So I think I, I kind of blew that one a little bit and the movie didn't do that well. Uh, so that was a stumble for me, I think. Now, now, do you do you feel that when you're on set? You said you know the comedic chops. Can you feel that on your scenes? I'm always wondering as an actor because my background, I did stand up comedy for a long time, and you know when you yeah. go into a room and, and you're dying, you feel it. You know, like okay, they're just not vibing on me. Could you feel it when you're on the set as an actor? Were you did that did that did you recognize that, or is it not till later that you said I just I would I don't feel like I was I had the comedic chops. Well, in critical scenes, I think you feel it. In sort of the um, the connective tissue scenes, uh, not so much, just because, especially that movie was a zany, wild, madcap comedy. You just get on the train and ride and let, um, let the Charlie Barnetts and the Mr. T's and the Bill Mars and the Marshall Warfields carry you along. Uh, so I did that. But there were a couple of critical scenes, and there was, it was kind of a silly love story on the side that was out of place, I thought. And I, I, I never felt really comfortable uh, with romance on screen just because it's a private thing. And, uh, uh, yeah, anyway, yeah, I, I would say it, when if you're bombing, you know you're bombing. Right. So so you're working, you weren't real happy with that, but then now full metal I was, jacket eventually. I, I was... I was competent, but my I had higher hopes for myself. I think I was just miscast. Okay, so now with casting, how do you get cast in Full Metal Jacket? Because did you know it was a Kubrick flick when you went? Or I mean, what was what was it like? Oh yeah, when that uh, Janet Hershenson was the casting director, and Kubrick's uh, mo was to receive videotapes, VHS back then. <clears throat> videotapes that he he hoarded the VHS tapes for his own archival purposes and he would tape over auditions. He had thousands and thousands of cassettes that he would use for other means, video playback, or he would send some of the the, the, the tapes to his mother in New York so that she could record the Yankees game and she would put it in the diplomatic pouch from New York to hit as uh, assistance in London. He was a notorious insomniac. He would stay up late at night and watch the Yankees games uh, without having anyone, especially when they were in the playoffs uh, against, that was the year that Kansas City won. And so he didn't want to know the uh, ALCS results while we were filming because uh, we started in the fall of 85. And uh, Arliss Howard, who played Cowboy, he uh, he was from Kansas City. <clears throat> so he was hopped up. He knew where it was going. But there was harsh penalties if you uh, if you let it slip. No spoilers for Stanley because he would watch the game after we were wrapped for the day. He would go home and watch the game. Um, I don't know. I, I sent in the tape. I asked Stanley later. I said, hey, can I have my tape back? And uh, he said, oh, I don't know. I, I, I never watched it. So what do you mean you never watched it? Went to all the trouble of making a tape for you. You never watched the damn thing. He said, "No, nah, I saw you in the 
he had this kind of nasally high. His voice is in the movie a couple of times. He's on the radio um, talking to uh, 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 Crazy Earl when we get mortar when a mortar attack hits us and we're going into the Ville. He's on the radio, so that's his voice. And he's also talking to Cowboy over the radio. That's Stanley's voice. He had kind of a, a high pitched, uh, bit nasally from the Bronx. I expected this. English gentleman's voice when I got there, but he was from the Bronx and he relocated to England because it was more peaceful there in his, in his uh, opinion. He didn't like Hollywood too crazy. And, uh, we had this joke. He had this thing called the Luma crane, which was, uh, kind of this articulating arm, uh, camera crane that you could swing around, um, they, they're called techno cranes now, but this one was relatively new, but it had a control van with a loudspeaker, and he would yell at us while uh, while directing us. He was watching us on the, on the video uh, feed, and he would yell at us to do things. But we had a joke that when we would go back home, we'd say, well, we never met him. We just heard this disembodied voice <laughs> yelled at us over the loudspeaker. Um, yeah, but... That was a fun experience, getting to meet all those guys and uh, hang out in London. We shot it outside of London, so it wasn't like we were in the jungle. Did they give you combat training? I mean, how do they get you? How do you prepare to be a soldier? Because I mean, you know Reed Diamond did one of those movies with a bunch of guys, uh, and they were all they had to go through training and stuff like that. How do they prepare you to be a soldier in a movie? Well, the guys that. The guys in the boot camp section, I'm only in the second half on the Vietnam section. The guys in the boot camp section, they got a lot more training. They had to focus a lot more and work with Lee Ermey, who, uh, as we like to say, put their dicks in the dirt. Uh, he would yell at them and make them do uh, a lot of working out and stuff. I, I came to the show. I was already in pretty good shape. Um, and I was only 23, so I was, I was pretty strong. There are a couple of uh, instances with my uh, muzzle management and my trigger discipline that I look back on and regret. But I blame, I blame Lee Ermey, who was the technical advisor, the late, great Lee Ermey, rest in peace. He's a buddy of mine. Uh, but I always give him shit because how, how come you weren't watching my trigger finger? It was on, it was on the, on the bank switch that whole time. He goes, ah, it's too busy trying to steal the drill instructor's role. Too bad, <laughs> too bad for you. <laughs> um, but I, you know, we did some training here and there on the spot. Um, there was a lot of safety issues. You don't want to, uh, obviously, I learned uh, weapons. It's an evolving process. I grew up with guns, but I didn't practice. It's a perishable skill, and you need to practice. So you'd learn on the day what your goal was and make sure you didn't Anytime there was uh, a hot round or a blank, we never shot live rounds, but blanks in there, uh, you had to make sure that it was not loaded until the last minute. And you never, you know, the four basic uh, rules, you don't aim it at anything you don't intend to destroy, you don't pull the trigger until you, all, you know, those the basic safety protocols, we followed those very well. There were no incidences of anything like uh, someone getting even pinged with a with a blank or anything like that. So uh, they were pretty sharp on that. But as far as the training goes, you know, it's just, okay, run back down that that trail again. 
You had to be in shape enough to be able to run with your gear on. Now, it must have been great, though, because as kids, you know, we all played cowboys and Indians, and we played war and all that stuff. I mean, what is it like to be getting paid for it as a grown-up, working with a legendary director, and you're a soldier? I mean, that must be just such a fulfilling job as an actor. Well, we got paid shit. Uh, it was British equity. <laughs> we, got, we got paid nothing. We get no residuals from that movie. Uh, what a crappy union. Sag after forever. Um, <laughs> uh, it was great, you know. It's it's intimidating at first, but then you you sort of find your way into your character, and uh, and then what are they going to do? Fire you? No. There were uh, he did fire a couple guys that were no good. Um, they screwed up, and he dumped them. But when he would give us shit like six months in. We're only supposed to be there for three months. After six months, and he start Stanley started giving us shit. We're like, "What are you gonna do? Fire us?" Ah, ah. <laughs> a bunch of young, bunch of young asshole actors think they're tougher than they are. But he was too deep in by then to get rid of us. So uh, he was like my. It was like a father son relationship. You know, you love him, you hate him, uh, you want to please him. And then you want to run away from him. Uh, it was all, all that kind of rolled into one. And I think he took that on as a, a, an intellectual game. He enjoyed toying with his subjects. Now, when that movie wraps, where do you want your career to go? What, what, what kind of, what kind of off, are you getting offers? You're still auditioning or, or what, what happens with you? Cause now you were next to Canon and the chocolate war, which was a very good movie. How, how did, how did that come about? Uh, I don't recall that one. I mean, I remember the movie. I don't recall the, uh, the casting process or anything like that. Uh, I came back home. We waited for God, almost two years for the movie to come out. And uh, in between, you do what are called uh, like connective tissue. Uh, you know, you got to put food on the table. Um, so I, I don't recall exact. I don't have my list in front of me, but there were some things you work on to get you to the next, to get you to the next, waiting for the movie to come out. And uh, it's it's important to have the means to wait when you need to, but. I got married and started having kids, so I needed to work. So I, I pretty much would grab anything I could. Now, at any time during your career, have you ever just gotten frustrated as an actor and said, you know, I should do something else? Because, it, it, you know, what people don't understand is it's, it's a hard career. I mean, people say salesmen go through rejection. Actors go through a ton of rejection. I mean, how have you ever had that point where you said, even though you've done a lot of great projects, you just said, this is just becoming a grind on me well i i was warned by don devlin to live below my means uh the only thing that put me living above my means was having a wife and kids which is the honorable way to go uh as opposed to the living the lap the life of riley and buying cars and a home you can't afford and all that stuff I lived, I lived small and, and uh, conservatively, uh, and there were a few times where I was flat broke, didn't know what I was going to do, and then something would come out of the blue, and, and oh, 
okay, you get a windfall. That's nice. I don't think I really came into my own confidence-wise until mm, probably the late 90s, early 2000s, when my kids were a little bit older and I was a little bit more of a man uh, and I was able to uh, stand my ground with some confidence and uh, I knew what I was doing. By, by then, I really knew what I was doing, too. I knew how to attack a script. I knew how to be on a set. I knew how to give and take from other actors and, uh, and still try to win. My philosophy, my late great acting teacher, Roy London's philosophy was support the play, but try to win every beat that you have within the play. It's a competitive match. Every scene, every beat you play within that scene is, is a competition. And the best scenes for the viewer are when you have two or three actors that are all doing that, that are all trying to win. They're playing the positive. They're trying to win. And they're not letting the other one win. Uh, but yet the great actors always find a way to, to win the scene. Even if they're the bad guy, even if they're written as the villain, like the, the great James Mason, uh, I think it's his quote, he said, I never play the villain. You meaning, that, meaning that he never played it like he was the villain, even though it was written that he's the villain, he played it like he was the hero. Alan Rickman's a perfect example uh, in Die Hard. Perfect example of how to play the positive as the villain. Now, you said attack the script. What, what, what does that mean when you attack a script? Uh, well, you go scene by scene, line by line, break it down. Where are the beats? Why am I doing this? Who, who am I? Where, where am I? Who's this other person? What is my action? The words uh, I always found less important or um, more uh, subordinate to the actual doings within the scene. The organic doings with the props, with the being in the chair, on the ladder, in the car, whatever that is at your desk. The behavior is way more important than what you're actually saying. Don't tell the writers of the world that I said that, but that's true. The best writers write action with dialogue in my opinion now eventually you end up and and, 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 the, and and the best actors are able to approach a script that doesn't have the action written in and are able to fill it in themselves with uh, doings actions if you will you mentioned some of the best actors. Have you ever learned something from an actor on a set, a valuable lesson? Because, you know, a lot of times people look to mentors, but have you ever have you ever learned something from an actor that just really gave you good advice on set? Well, uh, I've worked with and for uh, a few stars, great actors, and their focus, uh, my observation of their, their, 
their ability to focus and relax in between setups, in between takes. Uh, everyone does the preparation. Anyone that's good has already done the preparation. They've learned their lines. They know what they're going to be doing. They know where they're going to be going. Uh, so it's a question of um, governing, self-governance of one's energy throughout the day. Uh, and the, the best are very good at keeping their energy levels even keel in between setups and in between takes. Um, and so I, I learned how to do that, I think. Now, later in your career, you end up on a show called Firefly, which is, you know, is a cult classic now. What was your experience on that? I mean, did you think it was going to go longer than a season? And, and what do you think, why do you think people have just, they've really resonated with it? Well, we all have very high hopes for that, that uh, show. Uh, it, it got caught up in a, uh, well, just a, a convergence of, things working against it. That was 2002. It was the first year of American Idol. Fox only has two hours of primetime uh, television available, real estate as they call it, two hours of primetime real estate available. And that year, 2002, in pilot season, uh, there was really only... Wednesday night at uh, 8 o'clock and 9 o'clock available, and Friday nights at 8 o'clock. Those were the only ones that were open. All the other slots were filled with existing shows and American Idol. I think American Idol was two or three nights for two hours, so it took up the whole thing. It was a huge hit. So there really wasn't that much available, and uh, we delivered a two-hour pilot to the network, and they said, well, we're not going to give up both hours on Wednesday night for this pilot with horses in space, uh, I think is how they put it. So uh, we lost out to two other really good pilots. There was Fast Lane, which was McGee's slick, young, hot people in fast cars, <laughs> cracking crimes in the big city and looking hot, dressed really well. So that got the 8 o'clock slot. And the 9 o'clock slot was a Dominic Purcell starer called uh, John Doe, which was very good. Two really good pilots. So they got the Wednesday night slots. And because uh, Joss and Tim Minear were able to go in and put together a one-hour pilot, uh, different from the two-hour pilot, they gave us the Friday nights at 8 o'clock, which is the death slot, was the death slot back then. Because young people who were going to watch the show the target audience. They weren't watching TV at 8 o'clock on a Friday night. Everything's different now. You can stream anything you want on your phone, whatever. So, you know, if we had, if we had started 10 years later, we would probably have kept going. Uh, we didn't get the eyeballs. Bottom line is we didn't get the ratings to keep the show going. What is that like when you're sitting here? You know it's a good product. And I know it's, it's, you know, sometimes it, so many times it will come down to the networks and, you know, and you're right, American Idol was a huge, huge hit. And so people was getting amazing numbers, 
But you know, what is that like as an actor when you're on a on a project that you know is good, and, and you you sit there and go, they're just they're giving us the shaft. I mean, how do you keep it together? Mm. It was fucking heartbreaking, man. Everyone was heartbroken when they canceled that show. Uh, that was involved with it. We loved it. We loved our characters. We loved the people we worked with. We loved the writing. We loved the location. And uh, it was it was devastating for everyone involved. Uh, I seem to recall having a conversation with Ron Glass. Rest in peace, Ron. Um, he played Shepard Book on the show. We got we had a, an early dinner get together with the cast and Joss at a very nice restaurant. And I remember giving him a leading question. Hey, Ron, what is it somewhere in the middle of the conversation? Hey, Ron, basically as the elder statesman, I was 40 and Ron was probably, you know, late 50s, 15, 20 years older than I. I say, hey, Ron, what does it take to keep a show going, the cast working together in a nice way? He said, just keep it about the work. And uh, meaning show up on time, know your lines, hit your mark, say your lines and mean them uh, to uh, paraphrase Spencer Tracy, I believe. Um, but I guess the point is I, I tried to emulate that and keep reminding the younger actors on the show because I had been on Full Metal Jacket. I had been in my bodyguard and those were uh, two of my first what I like to call mile markers or uh, milestones uh, projects that I can kind of mark my uh, my career with. I said, remember, this show's going to go away sometime, so appreciate it now while it while it's here. Uh, and I think most of us were able to keep that that feeling. And Nathan Fillion was our number one on the on the call sheet. He was our department head, if you will. And uh, when you have a number one on the call sheet, with most of the work resting with him on his shoulders, if you have someone like that who is funny, loving, good, and it leaves almost no room for uh, uh, assholes. There's like a no asshole rule policy. And if number one is an asshole, then things can fall apart. And Nathan is the opposite of that. And uh, I've, I've had the honor of working with, and the good fortune of working with a few people like that at the head of shows, uh, you know, department heads in the acting uh, department that have made life a lot easier for all of us. So what, what do you think now, what, what do you think gives the popularity of it now? Because people love that show, and, and you know, if, if you're an executive at a network, you must go, man, we really dropped the ball. People are digging this. If we had done a few seasons, then Nathan went on to, you know, Castle and now The Rookie. I mean, what do you think it is that people just loved about that show? <clears throat> well, believe it or not, I think it, it has traditional human themes of uh, individual freedom, liberty, strength, and courage. Uh, it also has a, uh, a familial feel to it. There's this dysfunctional family aboard a cargo ship 
looking to get work, uh, yeah, they, they do some things that uh, are um, morally questionable, like they're thieves, <laughs> but they, they steal from those deserving to be stolen from. And they are um, resistant to the all-powerful alliance of big government, the Chinese uh, American evil governments alliance uh, in the future. So uh, I think that strikes a chord with uh, audiences because they're universal themes of honor, loyalty, courage, um, plus fun. It's just fun. You know, some shootouts with some goofballs. It wasn't too violent. It wasn't too sexy. It was just sexy enough. It was just violent enough. It also didn't take itself too seriously. There was a lot of tongue-in-cheek attitude that uh, um, sci-fi audiences appreciate. Now, the show ends, and you said it sucked. Everyone was heartbroken. And you, you go yeah. back to what you do, acting and auditioning. And then eventually you end up on Chuck, which has a good run. I mean, what is now, now what is your mind frame there? Like, in the first season, are you going, are we going to get screwed over again? Or, or, or did you think, okay, this is going to last? Well, you never know. Uh, let's see. It was NBC Network, Warner Brothers uh, production. So it's Warner Brothers for NBC. That anytime you have that split, you're at more risk than you are, say, if it was NBC production for NBC Network uh, in-house. They tend to lean towards those projects more so because the licensing fees aren't as steep, um, or they're more. You know, I'm not an accountant. But I think it has a lot to do with the licensing fee, and you know it's an in-house project, hundred percent. We were Warner Brothers for NBC. Warner Brothers loved the show. Um, Peter Roth, he was the head of the head of the studio then, and uh, he loved our show. So he was going to make it work come hell or high water. The network, on the other hand, they liked the show, but they were looking for numbers, and our ratings were okay. Not great, not terrible. Just enough to put us in that, are we going to get picked up by the Upfronts box? Upfronts generally being in May when they announced their fall schedule. The networks announced their fall schedule in May. And it came right up to the uh, deadline. And, oh, we got picked up for season one. Great. Same thing with season two. Uh, we did okay. Fun show. People, people who found it loved it, and uh, right up till May again for the upfront time. Oh, we got picked up for season two, and the same thing happened in all five seasons. The only thing we lost in five seasons, we would have had a hundred hundred episodes uh, on the nose, except in ninety as two thousand seven when we filmed the first year. Uh, that was the writers' strike of two thousand seven, and we lost the back nine episodes. So otherwise we might've had a better syndication deal, but it's a, it's, it's a good show. People that find it now, cause you can find anything now. Uh, they, they really like it. it it's, it's 
Get Smart meets James Bond meets, I don't know, uh, Best Buy. (laughs) (laughs) Now, as an actor, what is that like, though, when you know you have a full season? Because, as I said, you have to audition, you have to go out, you have kids, you have to worry about, you know, raising kids and making money. And when you're on a network show, you're going to make money. Does it add a certain relaxation to going to work, knowing you have so many episodes you know you're going to shoot. Oh, sure. Job security is a great thing. Yeah. No doubt about it. Uh, and yet you have to keep in mind that, hell, they could, they could pull the plug at any time. Uh, so you have to keep delivering on... You can only control so much as an actor. You, have, you can control your scenes. You can control your character. Uh, you can control your relationships with the people you're working with, but everything else is out of your control, so you can't worry about it. Case or us or After that, you end up the last ship. Great show. How, how did that come about? Was that an audition? Was that an offer? Did people know of you? And and you know, were you were you did you do you like playing military a military character? I think I've been given military characters in my. Uh, <clears throat> along my way because I'm big. I'm a big guy. I'm six four, five, you know, two forty, two twenty five in my fighting weight, but you know, I'm an old now old now. I like to it's important when you hit your sixties, my friend, to have a little extra weight in case you get sick. It's that's that's my story and I'm sticking to it. A lot of skinny guys dropping dead. You don't want to be too fat because that's bad for your heart and bad for your knees. But a little bit of extra weight as fuel in case you get sick and can't eat, can't eat your jello in the hospital. You want to have something to burn. Um, but uniforms, they're fun as long as they're comfortable. But uh, the, la- the last ship I auditioned for, uh, Michael Bay, and I wasn't, uh, I wasn't the first choice for that either. Titus Welliver, he got the job. He's a great guy. Titus I've known for a long time. Titus got the job. He filmed for, uh, I think it was two days down in San Diego aboard um, Navy Destroyer that they had. The Constitution? Graciously allowed. Great. Uh, no, I think it was the, uh, might have been the Halsey. I think they gave us the Halsey first season. <clears throat> and, uh, his, his wife died, so he had to withdraw from the project and take care of his kids. Um, so they called me on the weekend and said, get your ass down here. I guess I was number two uh, in line for the job, so I got my ass down there to San Diego and started working. The show must go on. Now, did you have fun on that? Did you, did you enjoy working on that show? Oh, it was wonderful. I got to ride around on Navy ships and uh, meet a lot of wonderful people in the Navy and pretend to be uh, heroes. It was great. Now, Hollywood has changed a lot in the fact that people are doing a lot of taped auditions. Now, you said Kubrick never watched your tape, but you're a guy guy who came from the past of when it was about being in the room. Okay, a lot of people get parts in the room. 
What do you like better? Do you still do you miss the room because people I don't think rooms are open that much anymore, or do you enjoy the taped audition? What is your preference? Well, one has the advantage of actually making eye contact with the people that you'd be working with that would do the hiring or would be championing you up, up the chain to uh, the higher ups. That's a good relationship wise because you can tell by the twinkle in someone's eye if they're going to be fun to work with or if they're going to be a troublemaker. Uh, on the other hand, you only get one shot, maybe two, two shots at it. And if you're off for some reason, either that day or, you know, you blow a line and they don't like the way you said it or whatever, then you blow it that way. Self tape, I mean, you can do it as many takes as you want until you really like it and send that in. But the best, the best, uh, the best casting directors and the best directors uh, for the most important roles in the films or television shows, they're going to meet with the actors personally before they get offers. Now the strike ended. Are, are you happy with the new contract? detail oriented on the on the contract um and so i i haven't dug down into it it doesn't really change my life very much uh so i'm i'm glad for any improvements that have been made for uh actors that are just starting out or who are trying to uh maintain their um, health care minimum uh, compensation to get their benefits uh, and contribute to their pension funds. But the minimum scale is something that uh, hasn't really affected me for a long, long time. Okay. One final question. So I'm, I, I'm glad for it. I'm glad it's settled. I think that uh, the dirty little secret is that the networks and studios make money during strikes. How is that? Because they well, because they always have content that they can that they can broadcast, and uh, they can after I believe it's ninety days they can force majeure. Uh, deals that they don't like and so they so oh you're striking okay well it's going to be at least 90 days and after 90 days we're going to whack overall deals that weren't that we didn't really care about anyway so they they save money in those regards um and uh they never really give up too much the trick is to get paid up front that's that's the big secret in the in the uh acting writing, uh, directing game is get your money up front and not, not worry so much about the residuals are nice, but if you're making, if you're paying your rent and your food costs and your car and your insurance and everything with simple residuals, unless you were on a show like friends or Seinfeld or a long running huge hit that's in syndication, um, you're still at, at or below the poverty line. 
Well, you've had you've had a good career. You've had a great career. Now, well, just give me the last question. Just just give me a, a few highlights of your career. When you look back on your career and you go, man, what are some things that really stick out to you? Because you've been in so many different projects. You've been on TV shows, been in great movies. What are just a few things that really stick out to you? Uh, witnessing Ruth Gordon and her kindness in my bodyguard and seeing the great John Houseman having fun and going to town in uh, the bar at the uh, Ambassador East Hotel in Chicago. Uh, meeting Stanley Kubrick for the first time after having been in England for, I think we were there for two weeks before we got to meet him, and walking the site of the old Becton Gasworks where we were going to be filming. Um, working for Robert Redford, who a kind, stoic, focused movie star. Um, I got to work with Mel Gibson on The Patriot, um, ride horses uh, with Jason Isaacs, and uh, I did the gunfight at the OK Corral uh, for, gosh... I guess we were doing that for about four weeks with Kevin Costner um, and uh, Lawrence Kasdan directed that. We were in Santa Fe for a couple of months. I had four lines, four or five lines in that movie, but I was there for you know, three or four months doing the gunfight at the OK Corral. Um, <laughs> that's how I know about that uh, that Colt 45 uh, pistol that tragically Alec Baldwin did not know about well enough. Um, there was Firefly and all things related to that. Uh, the, Ser the movie Serenity that followed up, that, that was uh, a shining city on the hill for me. The resurrection, if you will, of the Firefly universe in the movie Serenity. Um, riding on, uh, you know, the guided missile destroyer, uh, USS Halsey and going through uh, maneuvers and uh, sending uh, you know, 60 miles over the horizon on a practice range off of San Diego, firing the five-inch gun off of the, off of the bow. Um, and then working with uh, Zach Levi, who I think is uh, the modern-day Dick Van Dyke. He can do it all. He can sing, dance, act. It's funny and loving. And uh, just, I've been blessed to have uh, worked for this long. Hell, 40, 44 years now. What's coming up in the future? Do you have any projects coming up? It's a weird time right now. We're just coming out of the strike period and following on the pandemic period. I did a couple things during the pandemic in uh, one in Oklahoma and one in Georgia. Um, those I think have already been released. Um, but now it's a time of looking for work again. If we can just get rid of this uh, <laughs> prejudice against old white guys, when that comes around, we'll, we'll get back to work or not. You know, it doesn't really matter now. At this point, my kids are grown. I have grandkids now. It's like whatever comes is is all gravy at this point I, i've had i've had a good run and uh, hey i'm a made guy Fuck it. exactly man <laughs> i want to thank you for coming on this was great you've had such a great career and now now are you are you on social media at all 
No, I gave that shit up. Right, so people, you can't find him, but go to his IMDb. Go watch My Bodyguard again. It is a really good movie, you know, especially with bullying. You know, you got to like you gotta like the movie. It's a good movie. And just go check out all his work. Go watch Firefly. Uh, people, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 985 episodes. You can email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. Instagram, I'm at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.